Genesis chapter 48, beginning in verse 1 through 49, verse 27. We're not going to read the whole thing right now. The title of the sermon is Passing on the Blessing, Jacob's Marathon Life, Part 2. So it's kind of a continuation from last week. And this is on, if you have the Pew Bibles, that's on page 41 to 43. Well, I have shared uh, previously a little bit about my own story, my own testimony, uh, my conversion in college, and uh, a little bit maybe of my family history. Uh, Some of you know this story, but I have not shared this story from up front uh, about my, my family name. So actually, my last name should not be Golaxon. Uh, my great-grandma's maiden name was Golaxon. And my grandpa, my dad's dad, grew up not knowing who his father was. Um, he took, took, took the name of his, of his grandfather, he took his last name, who was Golak, Golaxon. Uh, and my grandpa grew up with the last name Golaxon. And actually, my great-grandma, his mom, just passed away last year, and we found out I finally found out who my great-grandpa was, and uh, it's been some interesting dynamics there. But uh, there's a, that kind of story began a trajectory in my life of fatherlessness that continued for several generations. Um, my grandpa, who grew up not knowing his dad, him and my dad have kind of had a strained relationship um, for a long time. Uh, my me and my own dad did not have a great relationship uh, for many years, and God has done an amazing work uh, to, to reconcile us and to, to do some, some great work there. Um, but there's kind of this history of, of generational curses, if you will, or things being passed down that were not, uh, that were not good. And uh, God, when he saved me in college, I believe began to break those generational curses, be able, began to break those generational patterns. And in 2006, uh, for Father's Day, I wrote a song for my dad. And I'm not a great musician, I'm not a great singer, but God, I feel like God really compelled me to write this song for my dad. And it was a story of our generations of, of the Golaxons and all these things that have happened and how there's kind of been this pattern. And, and it was really a song about, me, about my testimony and how God broke that and how God made me new. And... Uh, I sang it for my dad, which was probably like one of the scariest things I've ever done. And then uh, several months later, we were serving at a church in La Crosse. Uh, we were just out of, not long out of college, and uh, I was singing the song at church, and Lindsay came up to me right before the song and said, I wrote a fourth verse for the song. And the fourth verse was about Cademan, who was a, a baby at the time, and how God had broke these patterns and how... Cademan was not going to have to grow up living that life that I had lived and my dad had lived and his dad had lived. And I couldn't get through the verse, if you can imagine. I just broke down in tears. But God has done an amazing thing in my life and in my family life to break that cycle of sin, to break that cycle of fatherlessness. And by the grace of God, I've had three more sons, so now there's four of them to be able to pass on the blessings to. But it is a, it is a humbling and a frightening thing to have to raise children in the fear of the Lord, to have to have responsibility as a father to pass on the blessings 
to pass on spiritual blessings of knowing the Lord and walking with him. And whether it's our experience as parents or as children, we've all tasted the brokenness and bitterness of family relationships that have not worked out the way that we would have liked them. Whether we've been sinned against or whether we've been the one doing the sinning, we have all tasted this. We've all tasted the brokenness and the bitterness. And I think that's why this journey through Genesis has been so good for us. We've seen these broken people. We've seen these broken families and how they have trusted God and how they have walked with God throughout all the pain, throughout all the cycles of sin and fathers passing on. We've seen Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We've seen them repeating the same things. But God has been with them and God has not abandoned them throughout all of that. And that is a huge word of encouragement to us. And this is the testimony of Jacob's life. We're wrapping up Genesis here in the next few weeks. Kind of looking, kind of have this three-part Jacob's marathon life as we're kind of wrapping up his life. And if you're just joining us a little bit of context, Jacob has been promised land and he's been promised descendants by God. It was originally promised to Abraham and then to Isaac and now to Jacob. God has made these promises. You're going to be a great nation. But now they find themselves down in Egypt. They left Canaan to go down into Egypt with 70 people. That was 70 men and then women and children. So you probably have a few hundred people. It's not exactly a great nation, right? You're, you're about maybe 300 people, maybe 400. And you're in this foreign land where it's not your promised land. So they've been promised land and descendants. They're, they're in Egypt. They're not in Canaan, which is the promised land. And so that's kind of where we come to today. Last week we saw that Joseph swore to his father Jacob that he would bury him back in this tiny plot of land that Abraham bought um, a couple generations ago. Joseph promised that he would bury Jacob back there. But things are not looking good uh, for for the rest of the crew because they're stuck down here in Egypt. God did promise to Abraham in Genesis 15 that they would be slaves for 400 years and he would bring them up again. But 400 years is a long time, right? If you're alive right now, you're like, well, I'm going to die in Egypt and my kids are going to die in Egypt. And it's like, eventually, some of us are going to get out of here, but we're stuck here for 400 years in Egypt. But despite these grim prospects, we're going to see Jacob's trust in the Lord and the trust in God's promises, how he passes on these blessings, the promises and the blessings, how he passes them on to his sons. So let's pick up in chapter 48. We're going to read all of chapter 48. And then we'll look at that, and then we'll, just, we'll be looking at just some sections of chapter 49. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 48, beginning in verse 1. This Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, 
Before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near and kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Israel said to Joseph, Oh, sorry, Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the hand of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. By you, Israel will pronounce blessings. Sorry. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. This is the word of the Lord. So Joseph is told here at the beginning of this chapter that Jacob is about to die. So he goes with his sons Ephraim and Manasseh to see Jacob. And this old dying man, he musters up all the strength that he has and he sits up in bed. And what are the first words out of his mouth in verse 3? God Almighty, El Shaddai. God Almighty appeared to me. God Almighty blessed me. God Almighty said to me. He recalled 
his dream in chapter 28, where God came to him in the dream and the stairway from heaven comes down. Jacob at that time was fleeing from Esau. He was not seeking the Lord and God in his grace came and met with Jacob. And he said, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make you into a company of peoples. So there's this promise here of descendants. And then he says, I will give you this land for your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And we've talked over and over how we, if we look at the book of Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about they were looking forward to a land and a city whose builder was God, right? They were looking forward to an eternal city. So even this promise here, this promise of land for an everlasting possession, it's not just a temporary promise. It's not just as long as your people survive here on this earth. It's really forward-looking that God is giving them a true land, a true promised land. And then something interesting happens here in this passage. Jacob claims Joseph's two sons as his own. And we're going to see this adoption ritual kind of formalized here in the next section. The final part then of this testimony of Jacob's life is really interesting because he shares about his sorrow at the death of Rachel. It's as if he's saying to his son Joseph, remember how deeply I love your mother. He's about to die and he's reminding Joseph of his deep love for his mother. This is not an insignificant detail. Fathers, I want to ask you, can your children say the same thing about you? Can they see the deep love that you have for their mother? by the way you treat her, by your words, by your actions, by your love for her, by loving her in the way that God has called you to. The focus of much of the message today is going to be passing on the blessing to the next generation. And if you don't have kids, don't sleep on me, okay? Because I think a lot of these things are applicable to all of us. There's a lot that we can learn here. But I want to talk to parents now. Parents, do we tell our children, or those without kids, maybe the young people in our church, do we tell them about the grace of God in our lives? Do we recall to them what God has done for us? How God has been gracious to us? I think a lot of times we underestimate the power of our personal testimony. You know, some of us might say, well, I, I grew up in the church. I don't really have this you know, great testimony. But if you're a Christian, you have a testimony. God has been faithful to you throughout your life to raise you up in a Christian home. Don't despise that. And for those of us who you know, maybe have, like myself, you know, had a dramatic conversion in college, and then we have training on how to share our testimonies, right? And three, you got three minutes, right? And you have, you have this kind of canned approach. And that's okay. There's, there's times for that. But as we raise our children, I don't sit my kids down at the dinner table every day and say, okay, kids, I'm going to share my three-minute testimony with you again, right? It doesn't work that way. It's living out the gospel. It's helping them to see that how God has been gracious to you in your life by the way you talk about God's grace, 
by the way you point them to the Savior. Jacob's life was not a fairy tale life. A lot went wrong in Jacob's life. He was sinned against. He did a lot of sinning. A lot of the trouble in his life was really his own doing. And then his sons followed in his footsteps in many, many ways. But notice this deathbed testimony of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. Jacob is telling Joseph and his sons, God has followed through on his promises, and I'm passing on those promises and those blessings to you, my son and my grandsons. And I'll admit, I'm not always good at doing this as a father. I'm not good at doing this when I share my testimony with people. Sometimes it's easy to just focus on myself, to focus on what I've done. I might say, well, God saved me. I was a really bad guy. And then I just kind of focus on what I did and how I've got to where I'm at today. But Jacob doesn't get sidetracked. He keeps the focus on God Almighty and on God's gracious work in his life. I wonder what it would look like in your life and in mine if we were more bold to talk about God's gracious work in our lives with people. Just out of the blue, right? If somebody says, oh, nice family. Yeah, I work really hard to be, you know, no. Like, glory to God, right? I mean, it's, it's not that hard to, to give the praise to God and say it's all God's grace. <clears throat> or keeping the focus more on God and not on ourselves. So if you want a New Year's resolution to work on, there you go. (laughs) Be more bold to talk about God's gracious work in your life and keep the focus on God when you do that and not on yourself. In the next section, we're going to see this formal adoption of Ephraim and Manasseh as Jacob passes on the blessing, beginning here in verse 8. And as we've seen in Genesis, there's been a lot of irony. Uh, We've seen it in Jacob's life, and there's great irony in this scene. If you remember in chapter 27, Isaac was on his deathbed, and it says that he was old, and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, right? Isaac was blind. The same language is used here of Jacob in verse 10. This is why he asked Joseph, who are these? Who are these sons? Obviously, he, he knew who Ephraim and Manasseh were. He had met them before, but he can't see, so he says, who are these sons? And the irony is that Jacob took advantage of Isaac's blindness back in chapter 27, right? Isaac went out to, or Esau went out to kill the game, to bring it back to cook for Isaac so he could get the blessing Jacob's mother heard about it, said, hey, I'm going to cook some quick, bring it into your father, put Esau's clothes on. He goes in, he deceives his father, and he gets the blessing. The irony here is that now Jacob is the one who is sitting there and who can't see. And it's as if God is saying to Jacob, let's have another try at this, okay? This deathbed blessing. This is a powerful scene here as Jacob embraces Joseph's two sons. Joseph brought his sons near, this is in verse 10, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. 
Then Jacob blesses them. He blesses Joseph, and he, then he crosses his hands on the boys' heads and blesses Joseph in verse 15 and 16. He says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. So there's this pointing backwards to God's faithfulness. He had been faithful to Abraham. He had been faithful to Isaac. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Again, this is Jacob's powerful personal testimony of how he has walked with God and how God has been faithful to him throughout his whole life. Jacob, as we saw early in his life, when Jacob spoke about the Lord, it was always the God of my fathers, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. But he never said, he never used personal language to talk about God. Then in chapter 32, when he's on the run from Esau, he finally prays. God wrestles him and changes his name to Israel. And here he says, God has been my shepherd all my life long, even when I was running. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil blessed the boys. So this, is, this angel here is speaking about uh, God appearing to him and wrestling to him. Bless the boys. Let them be fruitful and multiply in fulfillment of the covenant promises that were made to Abraham and Isaac. And then Joseph, seeing that Jacob had crossed his hands, he tries to uncross his arms because the firstborn should have been the one to receive the blessing. Well, we've actually seen this many times in Genesis, that God often works in opposite ways of how we expect him to work. So here the firstborn does not receive the blessing. But Jacob reassures Joseph that he knows what he's doing. And again, there's a great irony here, right? Does this sound familiar? Remember, Jacob's mother, she's pregnant with twins. Jacob and Esau are in her womb and they're already wrestling and fighting. In chapter 25, the Lord says to her, The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Jacob was the younger son. And he knows what he is doing here. This is not random. Okay? This is a continual fulfillment of God's promises. So he blesses the boys. Then he addresses Joseph again in verses 21 and 22. He said, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you again to the land of your fathers. God will be with you. We've seen this over and over. This is one of the covenant promises that God has promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their offspring. God will be with you. You guys are going to be slaves in Egypt for 400 years, okay? But God will be with you. Do not lose heart. And then he says, He will bring you again to the land of your fathers. He says, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. This is one of those cases where sometimes our English translations don't quite capture uh, the meaning. The King James Version actually translates this literally from the Hebrew. It says, I have given to you Shechem. Uh, So this word mountain slope here actually is the word Shechem. It's the city Shechem, which we have seen before. Shechem is the place where Jacob came to and he bought a plot of land from Shechem's father at the end of chapter 33. And that is where Jacob built an altar and he called that altar El 
Elohe Israel, God, the God of Israel. And this is the first time in Jacob's life that Jacob calls on God and says, God, my God, God, the God of Israel. So Shechem is a very important place here. So this has huge significance. He's going he's gonna to give Jacob or Joseph that land. And this is interesting too. It kind of gives us some insight into some future development that's going to happen. Joseph dies at the end of chapter 50. We're going to see that in a couple weeks. But Joseph is going to die, and they're going to embalm him, and they're going to put him in a coffin. And they're going to carry that coffin around with them for over 400 years. As they go out of Egypt in the Exodus, this coffin of Joseph is going to remain with them. And Joseph, he'll, he'll make his brothers make a promise that they will bring him up out of Egypt. And if you look at the end of the book of Joshua, the end of the conquest of the land, Joshua leads the people in making a covenant renewal ceremony. It's the famous line that is on all the coffee mugs and the fridge magnets and the wall hangings. Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's in the last chapter of Joshua. Then Joshua dies and they bury Joshua, and then it tells us that they bury the bones of Joseph in Shechem. 400 years after this promise is made, they're carrying Joseph's coffin around this whole time, and he's finally going to be buried in Shechem, this land that Jacob, his father, promised that he would give to him. He gets by his bones getting buried there. Okay? Amazing. You might be thinking, okay, so what? Some old guy was buried where his brothers and his father said that he would be buried. whoop de doo Well, I think this is significant for two reasons. The first is that it displays God's faithfulness to his promise, even if it takes 400 years. God remains faithful to his promises. We may not see the promises of God fulfilled in our lifetime in the way that we expect. But we don't exist on an island. We don't exist unto ourselves. Our lives are not isolated. It's not just about us. We are meant to pass on the blessings. Whether it's to our actual physical descendants or passing them on to spiritual descendants. The Bible has a tremendous emphasis on telling the next generation about God and his promises. Go read Psalm 78, one of the most powerful psalms there is, and it recounts all of these stories throughout Genesis and how God was faithful to his people. So I'll give a word of hope to parents. If you've already raised your kids and they're gone and you're struggling with some of the guilt of maybe feeling like you didn't do everything the way you wanted to, or if you're currently raising kids at home and you're dealing with that guilt and the frustration that comes with being a parent currently, or future, if you're preparing and hoping for children one day, these feelings of frustration and guilt, hate to burst your bubble, they're inevitable, okay? Parenting is hard. I want to read to you from a book here, Living in the Light of Inextinguishable Hope by Ian Duguid. I've quoted from this before. 
but he's talking about God's faithfulness displayed in the covenant baptism of our children. He says, this faithfulness of God is intensely precious to all of us who know ourselves to be dysfunctional parents. We sin daily against our children by loving them too little and by loving them too much. Sometimes we expose them thoughtlessly to dangerous situations, while in others we shelter them destructively from difficult experiences that would make them stronger. Instead of consistently speaking the gospel to them, we impose our arbitrary personal laws upon them. Our own lives are inconsistent examples of holiness at best, and much of the time, instead of passing on the fear of the Lord, we hand down to them the oppressive idols that we ourselves worship as parents. What hope do our poor children have of growing up to love God? The answer that we proclaim to our children in baptism is that they have exactly the same hope that we have, which rests in the unchanging faithfulness of God. The gospel of God's mercy is as true for them as it is for us. They can be saved in spite of all of their weakness, brokenness, and sin, just as we are through God's overpowering grace. The God who loves our children far more than we do can adopt them just as they are, full of the brokenness that they have inherited from us and the new patterns of brokenness that they are developing on their own. Our God takes whole families of broken, sinful people and redeems them in Christ. And again, that's what we have been seeing through this family in Genesis. God has been at work Jacob made so many mistakes as a parent. We will too as parents. But let us look to God who is faithful even though we sin and fail miserably. So that's the first reason this is significant. The second is that this story of Joseph being carried up, his bones being carried up and being buried in Shechem, it validates the prophetic pronouncement that Jacob is about to make on all of his sons in chapter 49. So we come to chapter 49. Some commentators suggest that chapter 49 is really the pinnacle of the entire book of Genesis. It's where all of the promises that were made to be fruitful and multiply, starting all the way back with Adam in the beginning. Adam and Eve in the garden. And the promises then to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. They all find their fulfillment here as the nation of Israel is blessed by their founding father. This is the long poetry that we have in Genesis. It's filled with lots of imagery. There are a lot of plays on words here. Uh, There's some actually things that are really difficult to translate, uh, a lot of debate. This is probably, if you read a commentary on Genesis, this is actually probably the longest section in the commentaries because there's just all these interesting words. But it begins off, it begins, Jacob calls his sons, Gather yourselves together, and he says, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. And this language here, days to come, this is end times language. This isn't like, I'm just going to tell you what's going to happen next week or next year. The days to come here, this is eschatological, that's the big word for end times. This is eschatological language that, Joseph, that Jacob is using as he says to his sons, I'm going to tell you what is going to happen in the future. And we will see the significance of that in a, in a little bit here. 
But we're going to look at the blessings on five of the sons, and these are the five kind of major players that we have seen. A bunch of the sons that are listed here, we don't really, there's not really much happening that we're seeing with them. So we're going to look at the five sons, beginning with Reuben. So he begins by addressing the oldest three sons. Verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So this is the beginning of kind of an anti-blessing. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi are going to receive what is an anti-blessing. Same thing that happened to Esau after Jacob stole the blessing from Isaac, Esau's blessing from Isaac. There was an anti-blessing pronounced on Esau, how he was going to be sent away from the fat of the land, and he would actually be cursed because of that. So this, this cursing comes upon these three brothers who are the troublemakers. We just saw Reuben. He slept with his father's, with his mother's servant, um, Jacob's wife's servant. Um, And that was kind of the beginning of the end for him. He was uh, a troublemaker because of that. And then we come to Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi, verse 5, are brothers Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, and scatter them in Israel. Now this is talking back in chapter 34, where the Shechemites, Shechem, uh, raped his sister Dinah, and Simeon and Levi went and slaughtered their whole city. And this language here is talking about that. And so Jacob is actually pronouncing a curse on these sons for what they did there. <clears throat> and the significance of them being divided and scattered is great as well. They will be divided in Jacob and scattered in Israel. If you look In the back, if you have a Bible with maps of it, and you look in the back of it, Simeon is actually just a small little circle inside of Judah. They were pretty much scattered among the people of Judah. So Simeon didn't actually inherit their own land. And if you know about Levi, the tribe of Levi, they became the priests. So they were scattered all over the place. They didn't have their own land and their own territory. And this, then, is the significance of the adoption of Ephraim and Manasseh by Jacob. Simeon and Levi are, peace out, you guys don't get any land. Ephraim and Manasseh get brought in, and they're going to get land. Ephraim is in the north, and Ephraim and Manasseh are both in the north, and they are both going to inherit their own land. All right, so let's skip down to Joseph's blessing. In verse 22, Jacob says to Joseph, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. For there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who bless you, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, 
Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your fathers are mighty beyond the blessing, blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. <clears throat> so Joseph's blessing here reflects the story of his life. How he was attacked how he was mistreated, yet he was unmoved. He trusted in God, and he trusted in God's faithfulness, despite all the things that happened to him, despite his brothers mistreating him, despite his mistreatment in Egypt. And Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, then would inherit the land in Israel, like we said, the northern tribes. Ephraim actually is going to become synonymous with Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel is going to be called Ephraim. And then Judah is going to be the southern kingdom. And Judah will actually play a more prominent role in the future uh, than Israel will. But that's not to say that Joseph's blessing here is not significant. There There is great significance of what God has done here in Joseph and how the people of Israel will be blessed because of that. But we focus now on Judah. And Judah is really uh, kind of the main emphasis here of the sons and of the blessings. Starting in verse 8, Jacob says to Judah, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk." This is really interesting how this starts off, because if you read verse 8... Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. That sounds like a blessing that Joseph should have received, right? Because Joseph had the dreams that his father and mother and all the brothers would bow down to him. So what's going on here with Judah? Why is he assuming this role? Well, Judah was the fourth one in the birth order. And we just saw Reuben and Simeon and Levi, who are one, two, three, and four, basically by their father being, being cast away, receiving the anti-blessing, saying, you got out of the birth order. Judah is now the next one in line. He's number four, and he's going to take the highest rank in this birth order, and he's going to rise to the top. And that's really kind of where the significance of these blessings come in. The language that is used here is very strong. Judah is a lion's cub. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? So this language here of a lion is very strong. Verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So this, this imagery of a, of a scepter and a ruler's staff here, this is kingly language. This means that he's going to rule and he's going to reign. In the middle of verse 10 there, until tribute comes to him. This is another one of those interesting places where 
the Hebrew word is the name of a place or of a person. And the word here, until tribute comes, the word here for tribute is actually the word Shiloh. And again, it's not translated here uh, as Shiloh in the ESV. And there's actually, this is one of those sections where there's a huge debate on what this means. And there's basically like four different ways this can be translated and four different meanings. It can, it can be translated until Shiloh comes. And many people think this is a, a veiled reference to the Messiah. Uh, he is, the Messiah is Shiloh. Or until tribute comes to him. And I think until tribute comes to him is a, is a good translation here because it connects with the next part of the verse where it says, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So tribute comes, obedience of the peoples comes to this one who rules. And these, remember these blessings, these are all future-oriented blessings that Jacob pronounces on his children. These are not things that are just about to happen now. These are future-oriented, especially here for Judah. So it's not, this isn't about Judah but it is about a future king who would come from Judah. It's about the one to whom all tribute and obedience would come. <clears throat> we saw in our New Testament reading in Romans 15, where Paul quoted from Isaiah, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. And then Paul goes on in that passage to say that the whole point of his ministry was to bring the Gentiles to obedience. And we have to ask, obedience to what? Or obedience to whom? These themes all get tied together beautifully in the book of Revelation in chapter 5. Jacob prophesied his sons about days to come. This here in Revelation is the days to come. It's the conclusion and the fulfillment of all of human history. John sees a vision of the Lord seated on his throne with a scroll in his hand that no one is able to open. And John begins to weep. But one of the elders tells him, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seals. Do you see the language there in connection with the blessing to, to Judah from Jacob? The lion of the tribe of Judah is Jesus. He's the root of David, the one that holds the spear and the staff. He is the king, and he has conquered. Tribute will come to him. The obedience of the peoples will come to him. Just If you're confused about the book of Revelation, this is what it's all about. Jesus conquers. That's all you need to know. Like crazy flying stuff and weird images, it's all about Jesus conquering, okay? The Lamb has conquered. That's the theme of Revelation. And then he sees a Lamb standing as though it had been slain, and the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down and worship the Lamb. And they sing, worthy of you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That is the promise that we get to reign with him. 
We will be resurrected. We will be made fully new and we will reign with our king. It is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain, whom Jacob foretold. It is to him and him alone that all worship and tribute is due. And as we come to this table this morning, we need to ask ourselves, is it to the lion of the tribe of Judah, is it to the lamb who was slain that we have bowed our knee? Jesus is the promised king. He is the fulfillment. He is the promised ruler. And we come to the Lord's table this morning. And our warning is that if we have not done that, if you have not bowed the knee to Jesus, then don't come to this table. This table is for those who have done that. It's not just for those who are members of Living Stone or who are part of the PCA. If you are a Christian, if you have bowed the knee to Jesus, then you are invited to come to this table.